welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. My name is Julia Lejeune. I'm a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a science news writer at Madden America. This week, we will hear from Dr. Morgan Shields. Dr. Shields completed her PhD in social policy at Brandeis University and is currently an assistant professor at the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis, where she also directs her own research group. Dr. Shields is one of the few health policy researchers who focuses on quality of care within inpatient psychiatry. She has published over 25 peer-reviewed articles in outlets such as Health Affairs, Psychiatric Services, and the JAMA Network. She has also completed several policy reports for entities such as the U.S. Health and Human Services Office and has served as a legal expert in cases related to psychiatric patient discrimination. Dr. Shields' research exposes the ways in which current healthcare settings are influenced by power imbalances, profit structures, and organizational priorities that fundamentally misalign with the human needs of individual patients. Her research has affected change at the state and federal levels, prompting internal investigations and structural reforms within agencies such as the Veterans Health Administration and the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing Dr. Shields' current work, which aims to identify strategies for implementing patient-centered and equitable treatment within existing mental health care structures, and in doing so, reimagines inpatient psychiatry. Dr. Shields, thank you so much for being here and taking the time out. Um, I'm honored to have the opportunity to speak with you. And Really, just to get started, I know that you're one of the few health policy researchers out there who's chosen to dedicate your career to studying inpatient psychiatry, to understanding quality of care in that setting. Um, And I'm curious to hear a bit more about your journey to get there, your background, kind of what what has gotten you into this work, what's kept you committed to it? Uh, Yes. So that's the question that everyone likes to ask me. And they've been asking me this question for a decade. Um, And it's interesting because I think I get asked this question more than other health services and policy researchers. So if I were to study primary care, for example, I just don't think there would be as much curiosity or fascination as to why I'm so interested in primary care. What's the story, right? But for me, there is this curiosity, and it's actually been something I've struggled with. Um, how much do I share? How much do I leave to a person's imagination? And even if I don't share anything, people have imaginations, and you know, and and I and it's really caused me actually a lot of distress throughout my training. And now I'm at a point where I have a faculty position, and I was very open about my. Uh, who I am in my job applications, uh, which was very risky, and it worked out wonderfully. I mean, it just was so great. So now I kind of feel very empowered and free to be a bit more relaxed about explaining why I truly am interested in what I research. So 
I've always been interested in mental health care and inpatient psychiatric care uh, for multiple reasons. So I grew up with a father who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and he really did struggle. So he was homeless for most of my childhood. Um, and we, we would see him and he would sometimes be sleeping at different people's homes or on couches or in his car. We st- had a close relationship with him. He was in our lives. Um And the hospital was always this place that my mom would fixate on when my father would be experiencing, you know, um, a manic episode or psychosis, you know, she would say, if we could just get him to the hospital and, you know, and, and she would, she would dream up strategies of trying to trick him or like get him, just get him into the hospital because if he could just get into the hospital, he could sleep, maybe he could get better, but at least he'd be safe in the meantime. And there'd be some reprieve. So I grew up thinking the hospital is this place of safety. It's where someone could get treatment. And um, the fact that my father did not go to the hospital voluntarily was his fault. And so I I was very frustrated with him. He was the cause of why his life was stressful and why my life was stressful. I have other family members, too, who have what you might consider to be serious mental illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, and have been hospitalized over a dozen times. But then I had my own experience um, and my first experience in a, in a psych facility when I was 16. Um, And that, you know, without sharing too much, too, too many details or anything too heavy, the sequence of events was jet. There was a, a a huge traumatic event that happened in my life. My mother's uh, boyfriend, took me someplace and raped me. It was a big deal. And then um, the police were involved and it was very stressful. And so shortly after that, I just couldn't cope with the stress. So I was um, hospitalized. Um, And while there, the um, frontline staff uh, who were comprised of mostly men um, made fun of my breasts, being too small. No, and I had just been raped. I went through strip searches. um, And there was a nine-year-old boy who was crying because he missed his mom and he wanted to go home. And this this guy who had just come out of the military and he was the the primary bully of everyone, frontline staff said, you need to just man up and stop crying. If if you would just behave yourself, you would not be hospitalized, you know? And, um, And so I got upset and told the staff, stop yelling at this boy. So then I got restrained. And as punishment, I, you know, th- it was scary. It was a lot of strong men holding me against the wall and then um, sedated. And then as punishment, t- they took away my clothes and I had to sit in the hallway in a gown and write an apology letter. So that was my first experience in a psych facility myself. Um, and it was extremely humiliating, dehumanizing, um, and was the opposite of what I thought was going to happen. I really thought that this was going to be a place where people would be nice to me and they would realize like that I was suffering and they they would give me treatment. And I was very excited about getting some treatment and like some positive attention, but it didn't happen. I had another experience when I was 20. And at that time, I was taking classes at a community college in Florida, and my father was in a um, uh, a manic episode um, himself, and I was also working, and there was a lot of stress. So I was put on an ADHD medis- medication, Vyvanse, um, and I went manic. Um, and I have, you know, certain whatever it might be, I it 
in my family, people go manic. So I'm sensitive to um, stimulants and stuff that I consume. And it, and that was a horrible experience, um, the, the mania itself, but it, and I voluntarily went to the hospital so that I could sleep. Um, and I, and I was restrained immediately for asking a question in front of my mom. Um, and I thought they were trying to kill me at the time. And I, when they injected me with the chemical restraint, I, um, I asked them, what did you give me? And they didn't answer me. And I thought for sure it was lethal injection. And so I thought I was dying when I was going to sleep and it, it was a near death experience for me. And then anyways, there were a couple of hospitalizations with that and it was extremely traumatizing, um, abusive, and I was not a great student, but what ended up happening is I moved to Ohio and went to Kent State University and just sort of by luck and the kindness of an instructor, I was invited to work in a lab, in a psych lab, and I fell in love with the research process um, and I learned in interacting with the world that um, I could not talk about my experiences because if I did, people would no longer think that I'm smart and capable. Um, they would discount me. And I was afraid that they would send me back to a psych hospital just by uttering it. And then I, I kind of started talking about it with my colleagues, grad students, and they seemed to not be aware of these realities in the hospital. You really have to experience it in your own flesh and, and blood to, to really appreciate what it feels like to be so dehumanized. And I then, I because now I'm a researcher, I went to the literature and I saw that there was almost nothing in the United States being done on this. And I had all kinds of questions like, why did, why did I go to this place that seemed to be for people that no one cared about? And why, why was everyone there not white, basically? I was the only white person. Like clearly there was clustering of certain patients in facilities that were worse than others. But why was that? So I, I became very jazzed about this, very passionate, upset, and um, straight from undergrad went into a public health master's program at Harvard and went in with a proposal to interview patients and frontline staff to really understand what's their experience like, what's happening, how does it vary, you know, how common was my experience? You know, I just, I didn't know. Um, and from there, I've been very hyper-focused, got a PhD in social policy, continued researching this, did a postdoc in implementation science and academic community partnerships at Penn. And now I'm faculty at WashU um, Brown School. And it's social work, uh, public health, and social policy. And I think it's a really good spot for me because uh, I think that I very much align with the social work values. Um, and I'm very optimistic about where I'm at currently. And throughout this process, I just get more and more energized because I get burnt out and then energized because I realize that there isn't really much going on. And when I speak with patients and I hear their stories, it just really ignites me. It upsets me. Um, and so it's not so much my own experiences that fuel me anymore, really. It's folks that I speak with and that I interview in my research and um, and the stories that I hear. And, and also my knowledge of like how messed up our accountability and data infrastructures are. So the more I learn, the more outraged I get, pretty much. Thank you so much, Dr. Shields, for just sharing 
and your your willingness to kind of be candid and open about what you've been through and what drives you. And um, I can say too, it just, it resonates and I appreciate you speaking to that, that experience of, you know, being silenced in the process of, or feeling like you can't share this truth of, of who you are. You know, why is it too that there's this curiosity, right? That people want to know why you're doing this, what's your stake in this, but also such a lack of any available information on, you know, what's really going on within these systems beyond, you know, personal lived testimony, investigative journalism that's revealed these dehumanizing practices that are really widespread. What, What do you see as sort of these like structures that are justifying that lack of data or the exclusion of that data? Right. Yeah. Um, excellent, excellent question. And there's a lot going on. First of all, it's my, it's my opinion. And it's also this opinion is informed by my experience kind of trying to do this work and speaking with stakeholders and policymakers and payers. Um, so and researchers. So this is a population and it's weird to talk about the population as a population when I identify as being part of the population in my family, right? Um, It is a population in general that um, people are afraid of. They have discomfort towards um, mental illness in general. Um, I hate to use the word stigma, but it really is an othering of people who um, experience um, psychological distress or find themselves in psych- inside of psych facilities. Um, so much so that people don't even understand who is being hospitalized in psych facilities. And I myself get frustrated when I hear researchers who have certain questions having to do with quote unquote serious mental illness and they conflate inpatient psych patients with people with quote unquote serious mental illness. And I say to them, what exactly do you mean by this term serious mental illness? And why do you think these are one and the same? You know, this is a catchment tank for all kinds of stuff. It's basically the system in our society, not knowing what else to do with someone. I mean, it's a lot going on, but I've spoken with people who have been hospitalized because they're trying to get away from an abusive spouse. Um, people who've um, consumed substances and had a psychotic experience as a result of substance use um, ending up in these facilities. It's just a variety of issues. Um, But I think that fundamentally it's an othering of this population, a discomfort. And because of that, people, people are kind of um, afraid to touch it like researchers but also feel like they're not qualified to touch it. Like it's this special, special population. And like, I know so many of my colleagues do research on so many aspects of the healthcare system that they have no lived experience with like nursing homes and they feel totally qualified to do it and to ask all these questions. But when it comes to inpatient psych, they'll say, Oh, well, that's not my expertise. Really? But you could ask the same questions you're asking when it comes to nursing homes. And why do you think you're an expert on nursing homes? You have never been in a nursing home. Um, so I think that the root cause is, um, the othering of the population. And then, and this might be provocative, and I'd love to hear folks' thoughts on this um, who might be listening to this. The, the only reason that the system is going to care about psychiatric patients or accountability of psych facilities and in, in improving our data infrastructure 
at the end of the day is if they're faced with pressure. A system's not just going to change be- just because it's, um, you know, altruistic or, you know, everyone thinks it's the right thing to do. It takes resources for one. Um, it takes effort and, and there's inertia and providers don't want to be held accountable in general, like not just for psych facilities. So it takes political will and it takes pressure. Now, I believe that the advocacy coalitions and organizations that otherwise would be putting pressure on this issue don't want to touch it because they, and I've been, people have said this to me, directors of of advocacy organizations, that they no longer invest in conditions improvement because they're very much rightfully so focused on keeping people in the community. And there's this tension or this perceived tension that if we advocate for improving psych facilities, then we're essentially advocating for more resources towards the psych facilities when actually we should be putting those resources towards the community and alternatives to hospitalization, right? And that's this tension. And I'm not, there isn't necessarily like a clean fix to this, but it the reality is, is that there is a vacuum of pressure um, and, and I, I think that contributes, that's what, you know, it, it's a population that, um, is othered, it's easy to dismiss. And so without some sort of explicit organized pressure, nothing is going to change. Sounds like both people are avoiding going there. And also there's people, you know, some of that works great of reimagining alternatives, but then that leaves like in the lurch of what's the black box of what's really happening. Yes. Oh, and can I just add with this black box? I'm happy you said that term black box. There are multiple stakeholders that are invested in keeping it a black box. So it's not just provider organizations. Um, it's policymakers, regulators. And I, I'm not going to disclose what state this was, and but I'm using this as an example. So in for example, there's a state I'm aware of that... They had these psych facilities and they happened to all be for-profits. They were conducting fraud, right? They had unlicensed, unsupervised unsupervised staff. Patients were dying in their care. Patients were being put on 12-plus medications. Totally hard to fathom how that's appropriate for very healthy young people who then died from over-medication, et cetera. Multiple violations. But the state's... Um, and this was leaked in a newspaper, was the regulators were afraid to take away their license. They were not following the rules to maintain their license. So therefore, they should have, in theory, lost their license. That's the consequence. And if if that's not the consequence, then there's then it's fake, right? There's no point in having rules. And, and if facilities know that, then why should they invest in, in adhering to those rules? So um, they were afraid to take the license away because they needed the beds, and they were afraid politically of having too much ED boarding and the hospital systems don't want ED boarding and they are pretty powerful lobbyists and you, know, you want to keep people happy and you don't want there to be a news article about ED boarding of psych patients. So, but again, it just kind of exemplifies that they are responsive to pressures. It's just how do you make them be responsive to patient centered pressures? Because they don't want the journalism coverage of the ED boarding, um, but they also do not like the journalism coverage of patients dying. So I think eventually a psych facility or two ended up closing eventually, but it took a lot of uh, spotlighting. 
one question I have is what would that pressure look like? What, what do you imagine those pressures being at what points in the system? And then also kind of who is currently benefiting from the structure as it stands? First of all, uh, I do want to say up front, something I really struggle with, with my research, um, and this is my research is going to evolve with time, um, is that currently the questions I've been asking are very much um, rooted in the existing status quo and structures. So how can we make reforms? It's very reform-based. It's not not radical. Um, and I struggle with that because um, some of the fundamental issues I see with psychiatric care in general um, are deeply structural um, within the mental health care system, but also outside of it. Um, I think that the medical model, um, unfortunately, is um, might might be inappropriately used for um, a mental health, but that we have invested a lot of energy and resources and um, there are powerful um, entities um, uh, that really benefit from us anchoring mental health treatment within the medical model. Um, and all of our structures are surrounded by the medical model, you know, um, insurance coverage, literally everything. And so I, I'm not sure who, aside from, yes, there are the, there are there are some profiteering um, organizations out there that are financially benefiting from um, psychiatric treatment. And that's an issue. Um, and they have been increasing. Um, but I also think that the issues we see are kind of a, um, like a derivative consequence of our, our dependence on the medical model. And I don't necessarily think that um, any one psychiatrist or necessarily an association of psychiatrists like that some patients get hurt in psych facilities, right? I don't necessarily think that they appreciate that, but I think that they sh they there is, in my opinion, um, a knee-jerk defensiveness to any sort of critique, um, and I think that comes from as an, a, a collective organization that has their own interests in mind, uh, a fear of losing their, their footing, uh, their authority. And I think that that is um, exacerbated by the realities that within medicine, psychiatry is, is seen as kind of, it's a stigmatized profession and their legitimacy is questioned even within medicine, right? And so they kind of have an insecurity there. So then when they're faced with any sort of critique, um, they can't see how they are they are very powerful because maybe they don't feel powerful within their own home of medicine. Th that's just my own psychoanalysis of it. But I think that their defense of their profession and their footing and their stake um, really gets in the way of progress and is kind of what is sustaining our status quo and preventing us from doing anything truly radical um, and truly alternative to our, our current um, uh, models of, of quote unquote treatment. And, you know, so um, I have found um, psychiatrists, um, I've, I work with some psychiatrists who are amazing, um, but I have found collectively that they are the most defensive um, and, and, 
uh, they tend to not be the ones working on the front line of psych facilities. And uh, it tends to be nurses and social workers. And I find nurses and social workers to be way more sympathetic and understanding and actually have aligned interests. um, Because actually what makes these environments better for them is better for um, patients. Yeah, so I, I guess this is to say, who do I think is benefiting? I think I think that um, there are some professional societies that benefit from this power struggle, right? Fundamentally, whether or not that means they benefit from people being hurt in psych facilities, I no, I don't think they do, but that's kind of an end result. And um, and then yes, there are other profiteering companies that also subsequently benefit from psychiatry maintaining power in the mental health space. Um, and then I think there are other stakeholders that benefit from not having to be bothered with the really, really hard, heavy work of, of reimagining true transformation. I think it's really hard. And that's for anything, not just mental health, any sort of huge change, like policing, for example. So, um, and what change is needed? Well, um, <laughs> I, I think I, I kind of alluded to this. I, I'm optimistic, but I'm also pragmatic. I think the root issues here are power imbalance. And so for me, any sort of intervention that I try to dream up, I try to anchor it towards how is it addressing power imbalance between patients and the other actors. And so um, one tool that I have been really anchored around has been the measurement, reporting, and incentivizing of patient experience. Very incremental. I don't even know if that's going to end up being a good intervention, you know, but it seems like a good first step since all of the rest of healthcare is doing that. So why isn't, you know, why aren't we doing that for psychiatric patients? It, it's, it um, definitely smells like discrimination to me um, that we're not systematically measuring patient experience at the national level and incentivizing performance on those measures. So, but the reality is, is that those measures can be gamed that patients might be afraid to report how they truly feel that, you know, you, when you get into the weeds of it, you can really rip it apart. Um, And that's just one. Um, But anything that, that truly puts more power into the hands of patients, either at the individual level or as collectively as um, an advocacy coalition, uh, I, I think um, is the, is the way to go. Um, it's that's how our our imagination should be anchored around that is addressing the power imbalance in my opinion and i support i support a testing out alternatives um and i would love to research that in the f- future iterations of my work for sure um alternative crisis response but just i am also worried about how it is going to be co-opted and how it's this tension between accountability and it's accountability and true patient centeredness. It's it, it it's tough because you need there to be accountability, but it ends up turning everything into a formula, and everything becomes standardized and credentialed and measured against the medical model at the end of the day, which isn't what really what we want. And then it it's kind of repeats itself. So I support all. T- understanding what alternatives are best and for whom, but I'm like cautious about its implementation in our existing structures. 
Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, you you mentioned patient-centered outcomes. I know a lot of your work has been focused on that, especially more recently. I'm curious, you know, given this messiness that you're laying out of how complicated it is to to fit into these systems or make change within these systems. And I know patient-centered outcomes is also a term that's used in other medical spaces. For, for inpatient psych, how do you define that? What do you see as when working towards that? What does that look like? For me, it really is I'm just focused mostly on what I think is the first step, which is patient experience measurement. And you can think of patient experience as an outcome, uh, but it's really like a process. You can categorize it as an outcome, but it's really the patient is evaluating the process of care. Um, And the reason why I view that as like a first order priority is because we don't want care to cause harm. Um, And we want patients to be treated with respect. And that is important. When it comes to other outcomes, like the classic outcomes that are currently being measured are readmission and follow-up. Did you have contact with a healthcare provider within seven or 30 days of discharge? Um, Were you readmitted? Those are not patient-centered outcomes necessarily. Those are very much payer-centered outcomes. We measure those because they're easy to measure, because you can look at readmission and you can look at utilization of outpatient providers in claims data. And it's something. Feasible measures end up being readmission and follow-up. But those are so crude and they're not necessarily the outcomes that are most important to patients, right? The problem with them also is that, and there's truth here, is when you speak with healthcare providers, the hospitals, they don't like those measures for any specialty, but mental health in particular, they'll say their arguments, which, and there's truth to this is how can we be responsible for their follow-up or their readmission? We're we're just a stopgate. Like we're, they come here. You don't pay us enough to actually provide them any treatment. This is their, their argument. They're only here for a few days. We can't possibly give them any sort of like treatment. We're just trying to stabilize them. They have, there's all these other social issues that they're dealing with the patient. So we discharge them. We can't control outpatient capacity. We can't control housing. And it's not fair that you're making us responsible for that. And that's this tension. And, um, and I would say instead of measuring, um, those utilization outcomes, we could just ask patients, directly, if we were to measure their experience, we could have some questions that just ask, did you feel that your care benefited you? Did you, whatever. And that would be an intermediary outcome that we can assign responsibility to the hospital, but doesn't creep too much into, you know, the realm of community care and like all of the other factors that influence those outcomes that are outside the control of the hospital. Um, Because it's, there's political tensions and um, and trying to implement this type of measurement. Um, so that my first step is patient experience measurement. And then just you ask the patient, how did this impact your trust, your willingness to engage in care? You know, what was the impact on you? But you're not necessarily looking at the more like distal social outcomes. So fine, if the hospital wants to game those measures, maybe one way they could try is actually to perform on them, which is to be nice to the patients or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking very simply, but um, 
it, it really orients. It's it's like we actually the payers are saying we actually do care about what the patients think. So you can't just discount them. And um, and I do think that that could help reorient priorities. So um, I I had dinner with a social worker years ago, um, and they were explaining how they respond to these quality measures. So the follow-up quality measures in particular. And she said, oh, well, what we do is we're discharging the patient and then we just, um, we schedule an outpatient appointment and they kind of have that appointment, but as they're being discharged. So technically they've been discharged and then they have this appointment. So then it shows that they had this follow-up, but to the patient's the, the patient doesn't view it as a follow-up because it's part of their discharge process. It's not like they came back three days later. It's And so that's how they're able to control um, their performance on their follow-up measure. I think it is always helpful to have just a an actual example of the different perceptions of what you know follow-up care means to an individual who's actually leaving these facilities versus someone who works within it. Shifting gears a little bit, but all related, of course, um, since you've started doing this work and you've started really, you know, exposing and shining light on these, you know, huge gaps in the data that's available, um, as well as, you know, the harms and injustices done within these facilities, what, what kind of responses have you gotten from institutions inpatient at like the state or federal level? I will say I've benefited greatly from mentorship, uh, uh, that has helped me um, edit my papers uh, to be a little bit more mindful of multiple audiences. Uh, and I have found that frontline staff at psych facilities are totally, in general, um, enthusiastic even about my research, so long as I make it very clear that I'm not blaming them. And then I actually think that they also are victims of a very toxic system, right? We're talking about systems issues. It's not no one individual is evil at all. And um, so I have found frontline staff to be in general, um, not, not as defensive as um, psychiatry as a group. Um, and I, I get mostly psychiatrists who review my papers and they can be very defensive. They'll say, that's not my experience in, in the hospital I work in, you know, which, okay, well this, we're talking about research, research methods, one-on-one. And that's great that that's your experience in what hospital, but anyways, so I deal a lot with that. It's frustrating and I don't under, sometimes it's frustrating because I don't understand how they end up reviewing papers. Um, but uh, it, so I experienced that pushback during peer review. But then um, the biggest, and I've, I've, ex- I've actually experienced a lot of positive response to be honest, but I'd say the biggest pushback I received was when I was a PhD student. And I have to admit I was naive. I was very gung-ho and I, I kind of did enter this research thinking, everyone wants to do good. And like, if, if I share data and share, you know, if I point out how it could be better, everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, let's form a working group and let's try to fix things. And that's not how it, it ended up being. And I, um, I filed public records requests in the state of Massachusetts, a lot of them actually for my dissertation. And that made some people feel a little bit 
uncomfortable or or they were curious about what my motives were. Um, was I like a journalist or what was I going to do with these data? And and so I faced some barriers there. Um, and I was quoted $500,000 for um, data on restraint and seclusion. And I said, I don't have that money. I and But really, it was they were just trying to shut me down. So I wrote a letter to the Secretary for Health and Human Services um, in Massachusetts. And um, I was very upset. And I documented uh, two years of this of trying to get the information and all of the failures I saw. So they were not analyzing these data complaints. Um, there was no internal like data manage- management infrastructure, it seemed, like at least to me. Um, and so I was giving all this feedback and I was upset at how much it cost. Like these data should be publicly reported, in my opinion. They should be on the internet. And um, this is ridiculous. And I'm a PhD student who can spend all my time doing this and gathering this information. What about patients and their families? They can't. I don't I don't want to go to a place where they have um, 50 sexual abuse complaints a year. You know, I yeah, physical abuse, verbal abuse. So, um, and I want to know that, and I have the right to know that as a citizen and everyone does. So shortly after that, I then got the data for free. Interesting. And then at some point it reached the commissioner of mental health. I ended up having a meeting with the commissioner of mental health. My first meeting with her was lovely ish. My second meeting with her, I, I was giving her feedback for my dissertation and I wanted her, I had some. I had some outstanding questions about um, like co-occurring events at the time of, I was looking at the effect of an intervention and I wanted to know if the state was doing anything that could have confounded this. Um, and I wanted to know if my numbers looked correct in her opinion. And, you know, I was just trying to do my due diligence and I didn't want her to be blindsided. So I met with her and sh- I, I, I left her, that meeting crying and I'm embarrassed. I should have been tougher, but she just was upset that I I did my research. I don't know what else to say, and and there and I don't want to I don't want to um, imply anything. But I did leave that meeting. I went into the meeting really enthusiastic, and I did leave the meeting um, uh, crying. And I will say the Department of Mental Health they ended up implementing a um, a revised critical incident monitoring system, and they did that after I published some work, but only after, and I shared it with them. And I was, I was like, I'll do, I'll be, I'll give you free consulting. I was very enthusiastic. And it wasn't until a journalist covered it and asked them for a quote that then all of a sudden they, they implemented this new um, critical incident monitoring system. And they hired a full-time staff person whom I met. And I, I'm like, this is amazing. Cause yes, the data, it just was a mess, and and so they had yeah so now they have actual definitions of what physical abuse is and I, in theory they're doing a better job at collecting this information um, which felt great to me but it but I I was frustrated because I I really wanted to work in partnership with them and I I actually I actually wasn't motivated to like I don't know expose them or anything I I loved the idea of collaborating with them but I found that um, they were less um, excited about collaborating and and it seemed to, to me that they were most responsive to journalistic coverage of issues and like that's the way to get anything done is is to get is to get stuff covered by a journalist really um, that that's in one state 
you know, and, and she's not the commissioner anymore. And I won't say her name. It sounds like the state taking your work and, and doing something tangible of kind of rethinking their system and hiring someone, but boxing you out of that process, it sounds like. Um, so I'm curious, too, just in thinking about your sort of your positionality, you're describing, you know, wanting to do this more radical work or kind of push the bounds and think, um, you know, think about these questions in in bigger ways and in structure from a structural lens, sort of what tensions emerge maybe with you holding those perspectives and trying to collaborate with others who perhaps, you know, are coming at this from different angles. There's always tension. And I think with this topic, inpatient psych, it's so intense. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually hard to have a conversation about it because it seems like people get triggered by certain words and then they automatically put you in a certain camp. So for me, because I care about how patients are treated, I, I sometimes they, people try to put me in the camp of you must be anti-psychiatry. And I struggle with that because it just kind of shuts down conversation. But it is true that I think that the field of psychiatry has caused a lot of harm. And that's a truth. And I'll say it and I'll tweet it. So I struggle with people being able to hold multiple truths and engage in like a nuanced um, uh, conversation that is anchored in really caring about the people being impacted in, um, by this care. And, and mostly very marginalized, vulnerable populations in particular, um, like kind of holding that at the center and, and collaborating and figuring out how can we best meet their needs? Because I think we can find common ground around that end goal. Um, but too easily, I think in this space, people are very quick to uh, box you in and label you and dismiss you. But... I think we all can agree that we don't have enough data, there's not enough research, um, and our current system is not patient-centered, um, and patients do need more power. There's individual differences always. So when I talk about evidence, I'm talking about in general. Every It's all kind of in general, um, and at the si- talking about at the systems level, what are the systems issues? Some people and some families do struggle to access the care that they need and they do perceive their biggest barrier being the fact that they can't um, kind of force their loved one into treatment. And that can be valid, but also it can be a more nuanced issue beyond that being true for them. And that's, I just wanted to clarify that. You've been speaking to, which is fascinating, kind of these tensions that are emerging, how you can find strategies for finding common ground with people, you know, at the systems level, payers, politicians even. Um, And I also have seen in your work really like a call to action to include individuals with lived experience as partners in this process as well, either, you know, as researchers or in the policymaking process. Um, And also, you know, you're in a unique position as well of being someone who's playing in that dual role of a researcher and carrying your own experiences. So I'm curious if you could speak more to what, you know, meaningful inclusion looks like of a meaningful partnership and collaboration, because we've also seen, right, so many examples of, um, or running a a risk for co-opting individuals' voices or taking advantage of their testimonies or not, 
you know, only paying lip service to a collaboration that's, you know, maybe not that meaningful. So I love your thoughts on that. So obviously there's like many things that need to happen. The first one is, and this is definitely not sufficient, but um, schools that are training academics who are going to end up researching the mental health care system in some capacity, um, either at the clinical level or the systems level policy, especially need to value lived experience um, as a dimension of diversity and inclusion and take that very seriously. Because as we were talking earlier, um, unfortunately, it has been uh, viewed and felt as a liability as opposed to an asset. Um, And it really is an asset because the, the truth is that we all have bias Um, As researchers, there's no such thing as objective research. So we're all coming to the table with bias. And it's really a question of how can we make that bias more equitable? And so I would argue that the way we should be viewing bias is trying to put more weight and more value on the types of biases that are more marginalized or underrepresented. Um, Because there's an inherent power imbalance, right? And and so one way to address that is to put more weight on those who have less power. So um, that's what we need to do in the academy. Uh, and obviously it takes changing people's attitudes, at, but pressure and like true pressure on diversity and inclusion as the like hub of, of this um, because uh, disability and, and lived experience in generally just... Um, are, are really not prioritized, I have found, in um, diversity and inclusion efforts, and they should be. So that would be one, and that would be a way for us to get PIs with lived experience in leadership roles, eventually real big leadership roles after time. Um, and I've met, I've actually met some people who have lived experience who have leadership roles. So they exist, um, but um, I don't think there's many of them, at least not like lived experience of involuntary hospitalization per se. Um, and if, if they exist, it's hard to know. And so it's hard to find allies or find like your, your group because everyone's trying to hide it. It's, it's just not good. Um, so yeah, it's hard to find your peers and get the support and et cetera. Um, so that would be one. And, and then obviously it's a structural issue. So we need funders like the NIH to really value this um, community partnerships in a in a meaningful way where they put money um, on on the table, um, but at the end of the day, these you these grants are reviewed by our peers, and, you know, other academic researchers, and so it it takes at the end of the day, it really takes people buying into this as something that's important and being convinced because even if the NIH says, Oh, we have to have these partnerships. No one, if the reviewers don't think that that's important, they're not going to be critical of someone's grant. You're not going to be critical of, of how, how um, meaningful the partnership is between the researcher and the, um, uh, the community partners. And even, and I do, it is important that we, we partner uh, with community members, both individuals and organizations, because first of all, we are only one person as if we're someone with lived experience as a PI. So we we don't have the diversity of, of experiences that we should be tapping into. Um, and, and we have our own privileges, you know, um, that biased our own experiences. Uh, and also just by having a PhD makes someone incredibly privileged 
and sitting in a in a different spot no matter how your experiences were prior to getting a PhD like at you know so we're different and very privileged and so it is important to maintain those um those relationships so but uh, academic research is such that we do depend on grant money and the grants run, run out and it's hard to maintain um, continuous relationships with community providers or, or community partners um, because the grants run out. We can't pay them always for their expertise or for partnering with us. Um, it, and, then, and then if we don't pay them, then that's not good. We're exploiting them. Um, I'm lucky in that I'm hard money. So I'm kind of excited about that. But a lot of people are trying to do this work in soft money environments, which means that they have to raise their entire salary through grants. And so, yes, you might get money to do an amazing project where you're collaborating with um, uh, community partners and people with lived experience, um, but you have to then apply for the next grant and the next grant. And you have to be opportunistic and just kind of like do whatever the grant the granting agency wants you to do to get the money to survive. So that should be addressed. There's a lot, there's a lot that should be addressed um, to change the incentives of researchers so that we could support them in being able to do this work. And I do know there are a lot of researchers who would love to be able to do this work, but um, they're also trying to survive themselves. So yeah, with people who have the purse need to value this and they need to be strategic about how they use their purse. Um, and then us as researchers, as a collective, we have to we have to talk about this and trying to change the minds of our of our colleagues so that when they're at the table, they they're on our side, you know, and um, they can be convinced and maybe even speak up on these issues because that's what's going to take. A thread, a theme running through our whole conversation, right, is the power. It's seems to be coming back again and again to the power and the and the status quo, right, of how it that maintains the power is being concentrated in these, you know, it's other academics who are reviewing your papers, who are reviewing your um, grants and holding, you know, the our existing models in place. Are there any kind of examples you could give of ways that you've collaborated with with partners or individuals with lived experience in your own in your own work? Yes. So there's doing the research where I'm actually interviewing and um, collecting information from people with lived experience and asking them what exactly do you think needs to change and then letting those data then um, inform what I then prioritize studying moving forward. Um, the problem that I have faced as so someone who's early in my career is I haven't had money to be able to pay an advisory board. Um, which has been my dream. And that's, I, I have startup funds now through my faculty position. So what I'm doing now is I would love, I would love to have an advisory. I would love to have two different types of advisory boards that I, I collaborate with on a continuous basis um, in ways that I, we just have a relationship and I don't necessarily go to them with a project idea always, but that we kind of co-develop project ideas. Um, but I'd like to have two where one is more national general people with lived experience and maybe some representatives from advocacy organizations. Um, and then one that's St. Louis based because, um, I would love to do research, um, that has a positive impact on the folks in St. Louis, 
but I just moved here a few months ago. Um, and there's a, there is a history here. And, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to, uh, listen and kind of just get a sense for the landscape and not dive right in, but just kind of understand who has existing relationships um, setting up meetings with, with folks who do this type of work, um, at the school. And then eventually I'm going to start having meetings with people in the community, um, healthcare providers that provide community care, but, um, but other stakeholders and advocacy organizations that are very much St. Louis based. Um, but that's, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, to be able to do it um, appropriately, and it's a it's a relationship, and I want it to be a long term relationship. So, and I try to uh, I try to hire RAs with lived experience, and I partner with um, students at different universities um, who have lived experience, and I I try to do my best uh, to support the workforce um, by. If, if someone reaches reaches out to me and wants to collaborate on a project, I try to be generous. Um, but I'm also trying to figure out how to juggle lots of things currently and manage everything and not and not be a terrible mentor, right? So um, like actually be able to respond to people's emails and get drafts back to them. But but um, those are the things I'm doing now and with my limited resources. On that note, you know, I'm curious if there's any ways thinking about the people who will be listening to this podcast, if there's any way that, you know, at any level or even down the line could connect with you or get involved or share their story in a way that, um, you know, might be if they feel moved to do so. Absolutely. I would love that. Um, I, I'm, I love my work and I get really energized when I um, am connected with people with lived experience. I love it. And I, it sometimes it is hard to hear some of the stories I will admit um, because it's, it can be really upsetting that, that people um, have experienced what they've experienced. Um, and that, and I hear similar stories over and over again, that's really upsetting, but I, I'm very open. I would just, People can reach out to me. Um, I I do have a lab that I've started, and I have hired a couple of people, and so I do think my capacity will be increasing in the near future. Um, but also, just you know, I would ask people to have some grace if I take a while to get back to you, um, uh, um, because that might happen. I'm start I'm starting to teach on Tuesday, so I might be distracted for a little bit, but definitely very open. Uh, to people reaching out, collaborating, um, or just getting in touch. And, and then we can maybe later down the road, we work on something together, but yeah. Amazing. Um, I'm, I'm excited to hear that. Um, and then I think, um, and you've spoken to this a little bit in terms of how, you know, the more you learn, the angrier you get, the more stories you hear that fuels your energy to, to do this work and be in this work. But I'm curious, um, kind of how, how do you, how you continue to maintain hope if there's more you could say around that? And also what do you hope for in the future of, um, these systems or what do you see as your, your long-term vision for how things might look differently? Being, being pragmatic, um, my long-term vision, I would absolutely love it if in my lifetime, 
I could at least see um, people caring about these issues and and trying to address them, even if not getting it per- getting it right perfectly. But but there being a consensus in the mainstream that these are issues, and the in that the issue isn't that oh no, there's gun violence, we have to lock people up, or oh no, the issue like no a recon- a recognition that there is an issue of people being dehumanized in our systems and how can we fix that how can we, and, and and just a reckoning of of um the violence that's been inflicted on people in a similar way and i don't want to co-opt this and i want to be very clear about that but but in a similar and intersecting way actually with um police violence uh if there was just a mainstream reckoning that this is an issue first of all and then there's the debate of how do you fix it but i am afraid right now we there's not an awareness of the issue the true issues and that we're still debating reality is reality reality you know um should we listen should should we even should we even treat uh psychiatric patients as people like it feels like that's kind of the debate that i've been hearing and that's unfortunate and i would love for us to get to the point where we agree these are humans we are humans um and the way we've been operating with our mental health care treatment system has been absolutely unacceptable. And we have to figure out how to do a better job um, and have humility in that process um, because it will take a lot of people having humility because a lot of people have been um, participating in it. But that's the nature of life in these, these systems. We all are implicated. That's, so that's, that's my, my future hope. Thank you so much, Dr. Shields, for being so generous with your time. And I wanted to give a little space if there's anything more you'd like to say. Uh, And we touched on this briefly, but I I do want to just reiterate that the current mainstream argument that we need more psych beds, that's like the the loudest argument right now. Well, I have a lot of issues with it, uh, and I won't describe all of them, but it's important that people really... Uh, be clear-eyed and not forget that we do operate in a market-based system. So if you want a provider organization to be incentivized to add more beds or open up new psychiatric facilities, ask yourself what you think some of the unintended consequences might be. You know, it's this, it's, we treat for some reason psychiatric care as it's, like just a bunch of benevolent people, you know, um, and we don't view other types of consumer goods in that way. We seem to be able to be critical as a society of, of healthcare in general, and then also other consumer goods like shoes and clothing and, you know, exploitation of, of the labor force and all that. But for some reason, with mental health care, it seems like if you even bring up this, this, this critique, it's almost as though people get offended or it, it's, it, it, it's too much to process. I don't know what it is, but it is reality. And I would just ask people to uh, have some appreciation for it being a complex issue and, and, and potentially that there are issues of profiteering and exploitation of patients. I'm, I'm really glad you kind of went into a bit more depth with that um, because I think too, it's one of the most what we're he- what we hear so much in 
if, you know, increase need to increase access to care, increase access to, to beds, to inpatient care, and without any of sort of what you've paint this picture that you've painted for us together today of, um, you know, all of the nuances and complexities to that. And before we can just increase access, let's think about, you know, what is this care that's really being provided? Thank you so much. I feel inspired and I, I, yeah, just really appreciate your work and the work you're doing and the time you've shared with me today. Great. And thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It's, it's energizing and it was nice to meet you, Julia. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.